before we dive into where we left off last week, as you know, about a month ago, I talked about September 23rd. We talked about the eclipses and all of that. And as I predicted, now you can call me a prophet if you want. I said, now watch. I said, it's going to be the end of the world, right? Because you're going to see all these people saying, this is it. This is the sign. This is the end of the world. And if you remember carefully what I said, I'm like, don't be nuts. Like, we're to look to the heavens. We should be paying attention to this stuff. But my goodness, you want to talk a black eye on the body of Christ. Do you know how many people are saying the rapture's happening on this day or Jesus is returning on this? Uh, hundreds, guys, hundreds. So when we get into this stuff that takes you a little deeper, this isn't surface level stuff. We're going into the word. We're digging this stuff out and mining it out and looking at it because we should be aware. Just remember, don't be crazy. That's all I ask, okay? I know it's tough with me around and I'm a little weird. And as I said, it's like squirrels with knives running through my head. It's the only way I know how to describe the way I think. But the bottom line is, folks, there are crazies out there and they are, we're, we're to serve God. We want to get in the word and see what he says. And that's what we're going to do today. So I'm not saying anything more about it. Just remember, I told you this was going to happen. Sure enough, it did. And guess what? We made it to the 24th. Praise God. We get to have our fish fry because I called Jesus. He said, I'll wait till the 25th so y'all can eat well one last time. And just so you know, I'm joking. That's not going to happen. Okay. So we're going to pick up where we left off. Now, we have been talking through the different festivals. Remember that. We went through the spring feast. We went through the fall feast. Then we just, we kind of took a sidetrack there dealing with these signs and the seasons and things like that. The bottom line is, guys, is that God has ordained these things from the very beginning in a way that we can understand and we can see the signs of his coming. And we got into the Feast of Purim. Two weeks ago, I think it was, or three weeks ago, something like that. Understanding what that is, that comes out of the book of Esther. The bottom line is the reason they celebrate it is because it is a survival of the nation of Israel. Remember, Haman wanted to wipe out all of the Jews. This happens in the 500 B.C. range, right in that time frame. He wants to wipe out all the Jews, sets up this plot. It ends up getting foiled, and therefore they celebrate it every year. God, in his mercy, showed favor on Israel. Now, what, again, what we don't understand is that at the same time that the book of Esther is happening is the very same time that Ezra and Nehemiah are rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temples of Jerusalem. And if that happens, if Haman's plot foiled, then Jesus never comes. He has to come from the lineage of the Israelites. That's how that works. It was once again a way that the enemy was attempting to do it. You see the same thing with the birth of Christ. What happens? Let's kill all newborn babies, male, two and under. Why? Because the wise men showed up and said, hey, the sign is here that the Messiah has been born. Well, Herod freaks out. So you've watched this pattern over and over again. And we got into the, uh, the celebration of Hanukkah last week. And I'm going to just give you a quick rundown on it. Go back and listen. They're on iTunes. They're online. You can find them anywhere. Um, that way you can listen to it. And getting into the details of how they celebrate it, but more importantly, why they celebrate it. It is an eight-day festival. They celebrate every year. It is not an alternative to Christmas. They were not jealous of Santa and decided to come up with something on their own. That's not what happened. But honestly, that's the way we treat it. It's the Jewish Christmas. It is not the Jewish Christmas. It's once again a celebration of their survival because once again, somebody is trying to to wipe them off the map. You cannot tell me that this one people group in a land of about the size of New Jersey has all of this, is the center of all of this nonsense in the Middle East. You can't tell me that's not something spiritual because who cares? What is so great there? They don't have oil. They don't have tons of resources there. Why are we so fascinated with this? It is because it is a spiritual battle that is going on and not one that is just, hey, let's go take this land. No, there, there is a hatred for the Jews that goes back all the way to the beginning. And so what we saw is that 
Antiochus Epiphany, it tries to, he takes control. He tells him, you guys cannot worship. You guys cannot, you cannot do circumcision, which brings you underneath the Mosaic Covenant. You can't do that anymore. Remember what happened is that if a mother circumcised their child, they would kill the child, hang the child around the mother's neck, and let him walk around for a few days with the child hanging there, and then kill the mother. Great guys, right? But they abandoned all the customs. And they built the Colosseum, and you had a group of Jews that were what we call Hellenistic Jews. You see them in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. You run into them frequently. Um, we taught through the book of Acts on Wednesday nights, but you run into them frequently where they just said, hey, let's just go and make a pact with the Gentiles. It's so much easier when we just get along with everybody versus trying to keep our own ways. You know, God blessed us when we did this. We know that is not true. But that is the thinking, and they would go and compete in the, the games, what eventually would become our Olympics and things like that. They had a Colosseum near Jerusalem that even the priests, they would get done sacrificing, they would go to the Colosseum, and they would, remember, they, they competed in the nude. So they would strip down, go in there and compete, throw the discus, whatever they were doing, and then go back to the temple and start sacrificing again. And so Antiochus Epiphanes decided, he's Antiochus IV. Remember what Epiphanes means, it means the madman. Or no, it means the God in covenant, but they called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman, okay? They didn't like him. And so he said, no, you're not going to do any of this stuff. And then he goes in there and he erects an altar to Jupiter, which is Zeus, and sacrifices a pig on the altar there. He, it's the abomination of desolation. And I kind of went through all of that, and it was a lot of information. It was kind of a history lesson, and it showed you the map. But the reason I wanted you to see this is, number one, now we know why they celebrate. Because once again, they were trying to be wiped off the map. Okay, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, just so you know. But what I'm going to show you today is you need to understand this, is that every scrap of this was written down in advance to such a degree of, of astounding accuracy that in the book of Daniel, people are convinced that Daniel was written after the events because of its precision. They cannot accept because he nails it. The time that this happens, it's about 160 B.C. range right in there, is what they call that 400-year silent period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, where God is not really saying a whole lot to the people. And why would he need to? He said it all 500 years earlier to Daniel. So, I mean, it was all written down in advance. So, we have Hanukkah. And remember, when you see this, it's got the C-H, and that is their, their flimmy sound, right, which we don't do. Right? So Hanukkah is how you say it. We drop the C because we talk normal, okay? So they're wrong. But what I want you to see here is look at Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10. It says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. What is God telling us here? He declared all things from the end from the beginning, everything. He knows it all. He has, he can see the end from the beginning. He sees all things from ancient times, things that are not yet done. And that is what we're going to get into today, is the propheticness of how this was all spelled out ahead of time. It is unbelievable as we get into this. Now, getting in here, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 8. We're going to jump around from Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 because both of these talk about this. And as we get in here, you're going to see things. Remember, this all stems from Alexander the Great. His kingdom gets divided. So let's look at this. Daniel chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 9. It says, Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, 
and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifices were, were taken away. And the places of his sanctuary were cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all this and prospered. What we're seeing here is you, it talks about the great horn. So let's look at this map here. I showed you guys this last week. I'm going to show it to you again. This is the kingdom of Alexander the Great. All the way over here into Egypt, you get it all the way across there. I mean, it is massive. Right here is little old Israel, right between Syria and Egypt. Now, it talks about after the great horn is broken off, four horns come into its place, right? It's, this kingdom is divided into four territories. Go ahead and look at the next one, guys. These are, and again, this is a picture out of an old encyclopedia, okay? So this is a little tough to see because of how it works. But um, right here, you've got this Seleucid area, and they are, um, this is Syria, essentially. Then you've got right here in between the Jerusalem and Egypt, or excuse me, Israel and all of that. And then you get down here into Egypt. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes is taking over this area. But it talks about the four horns that grew out from the great horn. That was Alexander the Great, horns broken off. He dies, these four rise up. It says, and one out of them, one little one, grew to be great. And he goes to the south and to the east and even messing with the glorious land. So he goes down here and he starts getting after Egypt. He attacks them on three different occasions. The four horns represent the four divisions of the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great's death. And then one of those divisions, as I said, is Syria. And this is where he is. And it talks about how he waxed exceedingly great, if you're reading out of the King James or something like that. But he goes into three directions. To the south, he conquers Egypt. To the east, he conquers Mesopotamia. And then the glorious land is talking about the land of Israel. Now, how do we know that? Well, if we do things right and we exegete Scripture properly, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So let's look at Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 6. It says, On that day I raised my hand in an oath to them, to bring them out of the land of Egypt into the land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. How do we know what the glorious land is? It's Israel. How do we know that? Because God said it in other places throughout Scripture. This is one example. The land flowing with milk and honey we know is the promise land that was given to them because of the things of Joshua and, and whatnot. And so we see this fact that this you see a conquering here. And because of last, we know that he went in there and he conquered. Basically, Israel becomes a football that goes back and forth between Syria and Egypt several times, but it is a major battleground that takes place ultimately with Syria's, Syria going on. And so in verse 10 it says, And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground, and it trampled them. This describes this war against the Jews, and Daniel's making a couple of statements. Even the host of heaven. Heaven here is a term that stands for God, as in the host of heaven is the army of God. And a lot of times when we see that, we think of maybe angels or something like that. But it also refers to Israel. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of scripture showing that. Just trust me on it, okay? You can study this out on your own time if you'd like. But he is going to get in there. He is going to persecute the Jews in defiance of everybody, these angels that would protect Israel and that they were God's people. And he talks about him casting them down to the ground and trampling upon them. Daniel is prophesying that he is going to create this war against the Jews and he is going to succeed and win over them. Now, we saw in the first and second Maccabees last week, that's where this story comes from, is the fulfillment of this very thing. 
And so, as you, you guys, you see this, going on last week, we're watching how Daniel, in advance, is laying out this whole pattern of what's happening here. In verse 11, it says, He even exalted himself as high priest, as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary were cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all of this and prospered. He commits what's called the abomination of desolation in which that he set up an altar to a false god and sacrificed a pig in the temple. The, this temple is the house of God. Remember that God was in the holy place, the holy of holies, sitting on the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat. And so he exalts himself and remember, he claims deity. Talking about this exaltation, that is what epiphany means, the manifest God or God manifest. Secondly, it talks about he's even to the prince of the host. This is the host of Israel. He makes himself the leader over Israel. Who was the leader of Israel? It was God. It was a theocracy. They were to follow God. Now, they did have a king, but the kings oftentimes were evil. And so they lost that right several times. So, according to the Mosaic law, that the high priest could not be replaced except by death. But guess what? He basically farms it out and he takes the highest bidder and allows somebody else to go in there. And so they stop the entire sacrificial system because he gets somebody who allows him to do what he wants to do without fighting him. The high priest at the time was a guy named Onias, and we'll talk about him more in a minute. But look at 1 Maccabees chapter 1. In verse 44, it says, For the king has sent letters by messengers unto Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that they should follow the strange laws of the lands and forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the temple, that they should profane the Sabbaths and festival days. I mean, this is what we just saw in verses 11 and 12. What did he do? Now remember, Maccabees is not an inspired part of, of Scripture, but it is a historical book. And this is where Hanukkah comes from. And so he, he says, no, you're, you're not going to have sacrifices. You're not going to have any of the burnt offerings, the drink offerings. You will not honor the Sabbath. Your festivals are done away with. All the things that God told them to do, they were to obey him in. Or he puts an end to this, and they start, it says, the strange laws of the land. That's the idea of them going to the Hellenistic idea of how things work. And so the last thing that we see, or not the last thing, but the next thing that we see here is that it's this place of his sanctuary was cast down. This means that it was desecrated. We see this in 2 Maccabees chapter 6 and starting in verse 1. It says, Not long after this the king sent an old man of Athens to compel you to depart from the laws of their fathers and not to live after the laws of God and to pollute also the temple in Jerusalem and to call it the temple of Jupiter Olympias, which we know as Zeus. And that in Gerizim of Jupiter, the defender of strangers, as they did desire that dwelt in the place. The coming of this mischief was sore and grievous to the people. For the temple was filled with riot and reveling by the Gentiles, who daily or dallied with harlots and had to do with women within the circuit of the holy places. And besides that, brought in things that were not lawful. The altar also was filled with profane things, which the law forbid it. I mean, guys, he is allowing this up and the Jews are playing along with this. Most of them are. They are okay with it. But this, again, it's just stuff that Daniel is saying in advance that is going to happen. Now, the fifth thing he says, and the host was given over to it. This is Antiochus will have victory over the Jews, and many of the Jews will die in the curse because there's going to be several persecutions that take place. So the true worship was stopped at this point because they were no longer sacrificing the way that they were supposed to be. And instead, it institutes all of these false sacrifices and these things. And he causes these guys uh, to transgress the law. He sinned, Antiochus sinned, 
and doing what he did, but ultimately the Jews were supposed to stay separate, and they didn't. They went along with these Hellenists, with these, this Greek mindset and installing Greek culture in place of true Judaism. Watch in 1 Maccabees chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 11. It says, And in those days went there out of Israel wicked men who persuaded many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the heathen that are around us. For since we departed from them, we have had much sorrow, so this device pleased them well. And jump down to verse 43. Yea, many of also of the Israelites consented to his religion and sacrificed unto idols and profaned the Sabbath. Guys, this is a pattern that we see all throughout the Old Testament. You see it with Nebuchadnezzar. What did he say? Hey, you guys quit eating your food. You want you to eat of the king's food. And I want you to bow down at this golden image that's created of him. And most of them went along with it. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the ones that did not. Why? Because they, were, they would rather die than bow their knee to a false idol. But here, the Israelites go along with it, and they just play along. In other words, guys, it's not always best to go along with what's just happening in culture. We have to stand on the truth of the Word of God. And so it cast them down to the crown. It cast truth down to the crowd. Ground, excuse me. Now, this is the truth. When this says truth, there's a definite article in there in the Hebrew that says the truth. And that is referring to the law of Moses. Because not only did he forbid the practice of it, he forbid the reading of it. Now, watch what they did here. 1 Maccabees 1 in verse 56. It says, And when they had rent in pieces, that means tore, the books of the law which they found, they burnt them with fire. And whosoever was found with any of the book of the testament or of any committed to the law, the king's commandment was that they should put him to death. They couldn't do what they're doing. Now, again, thinking prophetically, what did we see in our own generation? That is one of the things that Hitler did, did he not? He went there, he took all of the books. And he burned them all and destroyed them. Anything that had anything to do with Jewish people or went against his thinking. Why? Because, it, especially because they didn't have Facebook. You know, if they had Facebook back then, they could have got information more easily. And it's always true on Facebook. If it's a meme, it's got to be true. But they get rid of all the source of information. They cannot go back and read it. Remember King Josiah, eight years old. Uh, the, Judah, the nation of Judah was wicked. Josiah finds a Torah scroll. He reads it. He's like, oh my goodness, we're not doing the things we're supposed to be doing. He was considered a reformer and brings them back into the will of God. And he, but the last thing it says that he did this at his pleasure. He did not care what he was doing to these people. He did this at his own will. And basically what he did was paganize the Jewish people. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you know that you have seen this time and time again. The entire book of Judges is nothing about, or nothing but this very thing happening. They get off, they cry out to God, God sends a judge that brings them back, they repent, it lasts for a little while, and then they do it all over again. So this is something that has happened time and time again. But, well, now, when we talk about Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, well, his rise to power is what's interesting. Because Daniel 11 kind of gives us an idea of how this is going to take place. In Daniel 11, starting in verse 21, it says, In his place shall rise a vile person. To him they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away and before him and be broken and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with them, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even in the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plan against the strongholds, but only for a time. Now, he is a nasty, nasty guy. He's going to rise up 
but he is not the rightful heir of the throne. It, the rightful heir uh, was actually his brother, but he ends up taking it. The Seleucus IV was the king. The king dies. It should have been uh, his other son that took it, but he becomes this illegitimate king. It talks about this illegitimate person. They don't recognize him as the king. And so he follows Seleucus, and he, becomes in, he comes in, he takes power, and he's not the rightful heir, but his brother was Demetrius Soter. So he usurps the throne from him. And because of this, this fits this Daniel 11 narrative very well. He goes in there and he seizes power. And he'll come in in a time of security. Because when this happened, there was this time that um, Seleucus had been murdered. And there was a time of peace that was going on. And so the rightful heir was still in a time of peace. But that was because the, they were hostage to Rome. Rome had had them paying tribute. So it was a time of peace in the kingdom. But only because they were paying off the Romans to leave them alone. And so he comes in there, and by all these flatterers, he gets into this place, and he takes this position of power. He convinces the people that he's the one that they should follow, and therefore he rises up. Again, if you're looking at patterns in history, you see this type of thing happen over and over again. And so when it happens here, he begins to take by force everything and starts to expand his kingdom. He wasn't happy with what he had, which is where he goes in there and he begins to um, conquer Egypt and he moves around to the different places and where he gets into a little trouble with Rome because Rome's going to put a stop to it. But the biggest thing that he screwed up when it comes to the Jewish people is he removes Onias. He was the high priest. Remember, to be the high priest, you had to be of the lineage of Aaron. There are lots of priests, and you just had to be a Levite to do that. But to be the high priest, you had to be of the lineage of Aaron. And so because of that, he is going to uh, sell off the rights of this, essentially. And so you're going to see that he grows in strength, and he grows in wealth, and the kingdom uh, just really begins to explode under his power. It seems as if it's a good thing that's taking place. Let me tell you something. Just because things are going well financially does not mean you're in the right place with God. Because there are a lot of bad things that can happen here. And so he is going to be here as long as God permits. He's going to reign for 12 years. And he, I want to point this out here, and we'll talk about this more. He is a type of the Antichrist. And Jesus himself tells us that. And I'll show you guys that next week. So as he gets ready here, moving on from Daniel 11 here, verse 25, he gets into this, this time where he's going to try to conquer Egypt. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yet those who eat of the portion of his own delicacy shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with the great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. When he goes in there to conquer Egypt, he didn't just go in there guns a-blazing. He began to pay off people in the kingdom of Egypt to go against the king, a double agent, if you will. And so, but as he's coming out, that is where he begins to conquer Jerusalem. And he will go in there and he will kill 40,000 Jews in a day. It'll take many more into slavery. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. 
uh, what happens. And then in verse 29, it says, At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Now what is this talking about? There are three campaigns he goes against Egypt. On the last one, I told you guys last week that he went in there and Rome kind of squashed it. Well, where is Cyprus? It's part of the Roman kingdom. They send these ships against him and tell him, like, you better knock it off. Well, he gets ticked off. He gets ticked off, one, because he got shut down by Rome, but also because in the Jewish uh, territory, there was a rumor that he had been killed. He doesn't like that. So he goes in there and causes lots of damage uh, to them and stuff and kills them. But it says that he should return and should regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And that's exactly what he does. Those who went this Hellenistic path and began to follow the laws of the land instead of the laws of God were raised up in his kingdom. Those he kept around. And then in Daniel 11 and verse 30, it says, For ships from Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return and rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices in a place where the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploit. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame by captivity and plundering now when they fall they shall be aided with a little with little help but many shall join them by intrigue and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them purify them and make them white until the time of the end because it's still not it's still for the appointed time you see, he's got this vengeance against this, and this is talking about the apostasy of these Hellenizers here, where they will rise up and just go with what's happening in culture. Hey, let's just go along with them. It's so much easier. But in Daniel 8 and in Daniel 11, it's talking about both of these things, the same event. He goes in there, he takes away the sacrifices and the abomination of desolation. He sacrifices a pig on the altar. Remember, that is an unclean animal. And so those who do wickedly against the covenant, it says, those are the ones that he raises up. Hey, those are great guys. Let's keep them around. But those who attempted to keep the covenant in any way were tortured and killed and murdered immediately. I mean, this is a bad dude. The, the theocracy of Israel was founded on the fact that God was their ruler. The people clamored for a king and they got Saul. But God gave them David, and David was a man after God's own heart. And then you see several of these other kings down the road. The kingdom gets divided. You've got the, the bad kings to the north. You've got some good kings to the south. But the bottom line is, is that it's always people that are causing their problem. There is so much bad that happens. And so in this, it talks about how this enemy is going to rise up, but people will rise up against them. It prophesies of this revolt that takes up, which this revolt is the very thing of the Hanukkah season. It's the Maccabee brothers that go in there and rise up against Antiochus Epiphanes. His dad, the dad was named Mattathias. He was a priest. He goes up. They move up to the north because they get out of there because they're threatened to be killed. And he tells his son that you will go. Now, remember, Hanukkah means the Feast of Dedication. And the reason it was called Maccabees is because Maccabees means hammer. His son, Justin, was called Justin Maccabees because he was a hammer. He constantly went and he died fighting these guys for the right to reestablish worship in Jerusalem the way it should be. 
These Maccabees knew that they were on a mission from God, and they would not mess around at all with anything that Antiochus was doing. They would have to battle their own people, and these people were coming against them and trying to kill them because they just wanted things to go about the way that they were. That's all they wanted. And so you have all this persecution going, and they rise up. And as we know, it's going to lead to the fact that they are going to uh, eventually rededicate the temple. And they do it on an eight-day period, which is where this whole thing comes from, because they model it after the Feast of Tabernacles, which is an eight-day feast. And so that's why they did that. So they're going in there, and it's this rededication. And that is what Hanukkah means. It's to dedicate. It's the Feast of Dedication. Remember, it's called, we know it as the Festival of Lights. It's off of the story about uh, that they only had oil for one day for the lamps and it lasted for eight days because it took eight days to make more. There really is no truth to that that we can find. But there's a couple of things that are happening here that we need to see. And this is what I want to show you is the precision of Daniel. And this is why people cannot believe that this book was written 500 years prior to the event. And Daniel chapter 8 and verse 13, it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, what you have here, you've got two holy ones. You're two angelic beings, one asking the other a question. Now, remember, these guys are not God. Angelic beings are not God. They're used in visions and different things like that. But it's very specific here. Is how long will this go on? He didn't throw out, it's going to be about this time. It's going to be about this amount, you know, whatever, day or two, you know, give or take or whatever. It says 2,300 days. Now, when you begin to look at this and, and you understand how all of this stuff works, is we have to begin to find out what those 2,300 days were. We have to be able to understand where did the, uh, the temple officially get desecrated? Was it simply what we call the abomination of desolation, or did it happen prior to that? Well, if you want to get technical, the day that the Aaronic high priest is no longer in power, and one that was not of that lineage, that temple has now been desecrated at that moment. Because the high priest was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. It was a special setting for the people of Aaron. So the persecution begins in the year 173 B.C. As I said, Onias, was, he was called the righteous one. Um, he is replaced. It's put in by a brother of Onias, um, who was, his name was Jason. Now it says brother, but he wasn't of the line of Aaron, okay? He was replaced by an even more wicked guy named Menelaus later on down there. He bribes Antiochus, as I said. He would sell this thing off. But in 171 B.C., Onias was murdered by Menelaus. Onias was the only biblically legitimate high priest on the basis of the law of Moses. And from then on, there were all these illegitimate priests until 164 B.C. at the death of Antiochus when they rededicate this temple. So from the fact that we can look into history that the abomination of desolation, the erection of the statue of Jupiter was done on the 25th day of Kislev in 168 B.C. We know when that took place. The sanctuary was cleansed on the 25th day of Kislev in 165 B.C. So the entire duration of the 2300 days, you have to go back at the death of um, Onias, which was September 9th of 171 
B.C. You go to the rededication of the temple, which was December 25th, 165 B.C. You want to guess how many days there are in between those? 2,300. That is not an accident, guys. He knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. This is the power of the scripture. This is the power of God. This is why that all of these scholars out there are just convinced that Daniel was written after this event. It has to be. There's no way it can be that precise. Or can it? Because if you don't have a biblical worldview and you're not looking at that, if you eliminate the possibility of anything supernatural, then you eliminate the fact that God's word could be supernatural, that it could be inspired by God, written through the hands of men and without flaw and without mistake. But if you eliminate that, then you've got to find all of these other reasons to explain away how he nailed that. And that's not the only things that Daniel nailed. There are several things. The divisions of the kingdoms that take place with the different statues that he sees in Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and all of that. I mean, the precision on that is uncanny. And so here we are. What do we do with this information? Well, we're not done yet, okay? I know I've given you guys more information than you probably ever cared to know about Hanukkah. Let them light their candles. Let them spin their dreidel, whatever. Eat all the weird food. Go nuts. But there's a reason I'm doing this, because we are combining, guys, what we're talking about on Wednesday night with the book of Revelation, as we go through it chapter by chapter, looking at the end times. And we've been studying these feasts because we saw how Jesus fulfilled the spring feast in his first coming. We see how he's going to fulfill the fall feast in his second coming. And then you have these two abstract ideas with the Feast of Purim and the Feast of Hanukkah. And these weren't afterthoughts. These are events of the annihilation of the Jews that were thwarted by the hand of God. And so how does this have to do with end times? What does Hanukkah have to do with looking at the end times pictures? Now, I know some of you guys who spent a lot of time studying end time stuff, your antennas were raising up as we started to describe some of the different things that took place because you're like, wait a minute, it says that's going to happen again. And it is. Next week, we're going to get into what this has to do with us because we don't celebrate Hanukkah. We open our Christmas presents on December 25th because we all know that was Jesus' birthday. I'm just kidding. It was not Jesus' birthday. But we still like presents and cookies. So, but next week, I'm going to show you guys how this is all a prophetic picture of the things that are going to come. And that the things that were will be again. It's the already but not yet fulfillment of prophecy and how the very thing that we're talking about, especially on Wednesday night, with, with the Antichrist rising up and things like that, I'm going to begin to show you guys how all of those were a picture of what's about to take place again at some point in the future. And it, all that I want to do is I want to give you guys an appreciation for the Scripture. That's really all I want to do. Because, man, I'm telling you what, the Word of God is powerful. When, when He said it's sharper than any two-edged sword, let me tell you something. That is not just hyperbole. There is power in the Word of God. And when we speak the Word of God and we know the Word of God and we know who we are in Christ, we are God's ambassadors on this earth and we got a job to do. And if you can't appreciate what the Word says to that precision, you'll never appreciate what He said that you are capable of on this earth. 